You are listening to the Twibbly Podcast, or This Week Was Way Better Last Year. Comedy podcast looking back at This Week in History. You can find us on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Podbean, or wherever you like to get your podcasts from. You can find us and or message us over on Facebook and Instagram using TWWWBLY. Welcome back to Twibley, or this week was way better last year. My name is Bill with one L. With me, he's going to get on that plane, or he's going to regret it. Maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but soon, and for the rest of his life. It's Mr. Jeff McLarge, huge. Uh, the problems of two people don't add up to a whole hill of beans, right? Uh, this is our hill, this and this our is hill. our beans. How's it going? Great. For a change, uh, things oh, are good. good. I got, I got all, so much on my plate. It's amazing. I just got hired to uh, do a presentation, to do a seminar on haunted house stuff. Uh, nice. That'll be, yeah, that'll be later on this summer. And if all goes well, I'm looking to shop that uh, lecture around on the national circuit next year. So big nice. things popping, little things dropping. Uh, as we are getting ready to record, I am leaving for Montreal in a couple of days. Excited about that. And what I'm doing now, because I spent a lot of time editing the podcast, that right. usually you know takes up like you know a few hours a day for the first three or four days uh, after we record. Right. And now the time that I allow myself to do the editing, I'm going to be working on this lecture and this seminar. Now, I've done this before, and my good friend Jeff McLarge taught me mm-hmm. how to uh, <laughs> taught me how to use the you know, the, the PowerPoint presentations. Yep. And But that was like seven years ago. And Long I time. don't remember anything about it. I almost called you up last night to have you try to explain it to me. But that's kind of like a visual thing. There's no way you could possibly show it to me, you know, on the phone. Yeah, we have to use like a screen sharing program like Teams or something. I could see what you were doing and tell you what to do. Yep. And then I would have to call you up and ask you how to use Teams because I've never used it. So what I did was I found my old uh, seminar that I did seven years ago. Right. And I was like, well, I'll just dissect it and just put in new stuff. And I'm, I'm still trying to like, I'm still trying to figure out like how to make the words appear, you know, how to put in like the little animations because, right, right. you know, people like flashing lights and, and stuff like that. Things that blink. They yes. like things that blink. Right. And like you were telling me, and I was telling the guy that puts on the the convention, a picture is worth a thousand words. And if you put a thousand words up on the screen, you're going to put everybody to sleep. Right. So that's what I've been doing. I've been looking around for pictures to put up, and then I'm going to talk about said pictures. And uh, I'm actually really excited about this. That's great. I've talked to a few people, you know, telling them my, uh, my plan, my master plan. And of course... Most people are going to say, oh, that's awesome. You know, there's very few people that you encounter that you tell them that and they're like, eh, you'll fail. People don't. Right. <laughs> people generally don't talk like that. The only people no. that talk like that are like people that talk to them, talk themselves out of doing cool stuff. True. I agree. I have never been one to talk myself out of doing cool stuff. However, 
uh, do tend to start projects that are outside my comfort zone with a little bit more slowness than I usually would. But for when it comes to stuff like PowerPoint or public speaking, man, I'm all over that. Yeah. So I'm all like right. a little trepidatious just because I haven't done this in so long. But like I said, everybody that I talk to, they're excited about it. Like, oh my God, you're a good, te- you're a good talker. I was like, yeah, I get a lot of practice. So yeah, so that'll be cool. Awesome. Well, I have to talk as part of my job. So I've, I've had to do stand-up communications training. I did the 40th one last night at oh. 7 p.m. Yeah, I've done 40 of them in the last five weeks. So uh, I'm all, the, I understand a, that. That's a crazy amount. <laughs> yes, right. it's a lot. All right, so before we get the show started, of course, I have my very popular and always well-received trivia question. Hey, Jeff. Uh-oh. All right, so, Jeff, uh, I just stumbled across some tart. Tartaric acid. Okay. Uh, what is tartaric acid, and where can you find such matter? Tartaric acid, huh? Tartaric acid. T-A-R-T-A-R-I-C. I bet I can tell you at the end of the show. I bet you get it wrong. I. We'll see. You're, you're one in a row. I'm one so, in a row. I'm going to yep. go for a double my score. I'm going to double my money bill. At the end of the show today. Very good. All right, so this is the week beginning June the 5th, and it is your turn to start. Bill, before we start on June 5th, I just want to say I am super excited that you and I have invented the entire genre of discussing history in a way that people can listen to and manage. Because in 1981, (laughs) the world's first Today in History program with editable date, today, as it was called, was invented by Michael Butler. And it runs for the first time on a mainframe computer. So technically, we didn't invent the genre, Bill. We are victims of the genre. Yeah. There was a computer program called Today. That's what what he called it. Should have called it Twibbly. I guess Uh, that's what I say, right? Yeah. Well, then we'd probably owe that guy some money, or we'd have to come up with a better name than than Twibbly. There's no better name than Twibbly. Whenever I tell people about our show, I tell them, you know, it's called This Week Was Way Better Last Year. And they always laugh. They go, that is the most cynically positive thing I've ever heard in my life. Right. And I was like, well, that's, you know, kind of what we're going for. We, uh, you know, we're both, uh, I mean, we're 80s kids, but we kind of came up, you know, came up during the 90s with right. the whole, like, everything sucks kind of mentality. So, you know, we're products of that. So, yeah, it's, it's optimistically <laughs> cynical. Cynically optimistic, I like, is even better sure. description. I think. I'm going to guess that this was something that would just give you a factoid each day yep. on your Commodore VIC-20 or whatever the mainframe that it was connected to. If you were using like Digital Equipment Corporation and computers, that it it was something that would say, hey, to, you know, today is the first day of the Today program. It's 1981. And you could go like, oh, isn't that great? I've got a little historical thing in green glowing text on my 13-inch monochrome monitor. Hooray. And yeah, then go about and- doing all the things that you do. You know? And the, the way that, like, computers worked back then, you would have to, like, get your cassette tape with the Today program on it, load it in, sit around for, like, 5, 10, sometimes 15 minutes waiting for the computer program to load up. And then once it's loaded up, you run it. It's like, okay, what happened on June 5th uh, in history? And it's like, well, we just invented this program. Why don't you uh, <laughs> relax a bit, okay? Get off, you calm, get off my ass. Calm down. Well, yeah. <laughs> well, since this one was installed on a mainframe computer, my guess is it was in you know one of those old style like you know the rooms full of the big cabinets with the spinning 
tape wheels yes, on them. Okay. You yep. know, it's in there and it's like beep boop 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 beep boop 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 today. 1957. Yeah, and then it would sp- spit out some text like, 1957, the Chevrolet Bel Air was released. And you'd be like, oh, that's great. And then you go about doing whatever it is you're going to do with the it just spit, yeah. computer. It spits out those cards with all the punched holes in it. And stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah it's, you can see in, in a reenactment of this in Willy Wonka the Chocolate Factory with the guy asking the computer where the last of the golden tickets is. And I'm right, now telling right, him right. what he can do with his lifetime supply of chocolate. Um, <laughs> so... Yeah, I'm sure it was something like that. All right. Let's go on to the 6th, June the 6th, 1988. One of my favorite things to go back and look in uh, history, especially during the 80s, is all the moral panics, mm-hmm. like the satanic panic and stuff like that. Well, this was no exception. June 6, 1988, uh, the cartoon of Muddy Mouse is accused by the American Family Association of sniffing cocaine <laughs> on a recent episode. Yeah. Um, so Mighty Mouse said uh, there was some flowers, and they got crushed by, like, a bully or something like that. Yeah, and then a he, big like, dog. Yeah, and he, like, picked up the petals that got crushed to smell them because flowers smell nice, and the petals went up his nose, and therefore he is snorting cocaine, I think. That the American Family Association needs to calm the hell down. Well, admittedly, and far be it for me to even suggest that I'm ever agreeing with the American Family Association about anything. But the audience may not know is this particular iteration of the Mighty Mouse cartoon was drawn by and animated by Ralph Bakshi and Ralph Bakshi's animation company, which at the time was 85% cocaine. (laughs) <laughs> so, so it's entirely possible that that wasn't an unintentional illusion at the time that said it was yep. still blown way out of proportion and it knocked the show off the air faster than you can say here i come to save the day that that the whole thing is like lump that in with the rest of the moral panics of the day and also it's mighty mouse you know right. if you're a little kid and you're watching mighty mouse i mean i used to watch mighty mouse you know, earlier iterations of it, obviously. But I, like, aged out of Mighty Mouse by the time I was, like, 10. Right. I didn't know what cocaine was, you know, when I was 10. And if I did, it was just, like, the most evil thing in the world. And I didn't think, you know, Mighty Mouse was doing it. It was just smelling some flowers. Well, admittedly, Mighty Mouse that, like, that we grew up with when we were 10 was the Mighty Mouse that was made in the, what, the 50s, the 40s and 50s? Sure. As opposed to the one that Bakshi was doing. Drugs and cocaine were way more on TV as just subjects of discussion in 88 than they were young when we were younger and watching cartoons. So it doesn't oh, surprise sure. me that, you know, it doesn't that's surprise the, me that it was in the public consciousness more. Yeah, that's a Just Say No era with Nancy Reagan, right? Right, right. Back in the 50s, Mighty Mouse is, Here I come to turn in all communists! <laughs> No, let's not forget now that Mighty Mouse was a Disney cartoon. <laughs> yeah. I, no, I, I, no, actually, it wasn't. <laughs> it might as well have been, though. Might as well um, have been. Yeah, now, Ralph Batchy, he went on to do a bunch of more adult cartoons that where they actually were doing cocaine. Like, didn't he do... You said he did American Pop, right? Well, he didn't go on to do them. He did all those yeah. before he did Mighty Mouse. Mighty Mouse was like yeah. 87, 88. Well, he got to start doing animation on the old Spider-Man cartoon from the 60s. If you could call that animation. First season, you could. Second season, uh, repurposing um, Rocket Robin Hood episodes into Spider-Man episodes. But then he started making feature films. He made Fritz the Cat. 
He made a couple of other ones. Gosh, I can't remember the name of all of them, but there's like three or four that he made in the 70s that were really popular, and then he did Lord of the Rings, American Pop, Wizards, Fire and Ice with um, Frank Frazetta. He'd always been doing cartoons for television as well as like a side business as he was doing his feature films. So he was like a known property when he was doing Mighty Mouse, and it wasn't unexpected for him to be doing something. And the show was a lot more adult. It was closer to Red and Stimpy than it was to the Mighty Mouse that you and I grew up with. Okay. At the time that it was on, but it was not on for long because of this. All right. Uh, Let's go on to the 7th. June 7th, 1993 is the official groundbreaking of the much maligned Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in inexplicably picked Cleveland, Ohio to house this museum. (laughs) Yeah, I don't really consider Cleveland to be... Well, I mean, Cleveland rocks. You know, there's that song. Right. Maybe that's why they picked it, but I would think more like... You know, Detroit Rock City would be a, a better place for the well, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I think Cleveland Rocks is probably code for Cleveland gave us a tax break. Cleveland gave us a tax break. <laughs> and Detroit wouldn't do that. But for me, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is literally the place that just provides the annual one month of complaining and whining about who did or didn't get nominated and or voted in for this year. And then there's a ceremony that isn't televised that I don't go to look for anyway. And <laughs> it fades away from a memory for 10 months until it starts showing up in the news. And it's like, the Backstreet Boys, Alice Cooper, some girl who was a backup singer on a Bee Gees album. They're all being nominated for the, they're like, I don't care about any of this stuff. Yeah. Like you said, at the beginning of the segment, everybody hates the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. <laughs> right. Myself, personally, like once Kiss and Rush finally got in i have like no dog in this race i don't care i like the last one i think i'm holding out for is iron maiden why they haven't been put in yet is the mystery of stonehenge to me it doesn't make any sense well i guess for this year they're waiting for willie nelson to get in first they're holding the door for willie nelson and, and missy elliott to get in i don't know man if i ever go to cleveland for work or something and i have a spare day i'll probably go and walk around in it and check it out because I had yeah, a really I'm good sure. time at the Country Music Hall of Fame, which I thought I would be bored to tears by. Right. But I absolutely loved every nanosecond that I was in there. So who knows? It may be awesome. I just haven't been there yet. Yeah. I am absolutely 100% sure that the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame has a bunch of really cool stuff to look at. Mm-hmm. Like, there was a small, very small section of Foxwoods that had, like, near their, th- their music theater. Right. It has some stuff. And they have, like, some of John Entwistle's more elaborate wardrobe choices right over there, which is awesome to look at. So I imagine that the actual Rock and Roll Hall of Fame has some major cool stuff to Oh, I'm sure. To look at. But the actual like the ceremony and all that, man, it's always something. It's always a nightmare. Like a nightmare from the nominations, a nightmare to who actually gets picked, and a nightmare whenever they get up to do their uh they're accepting. I remember there being a big controversy whenever Blondie got put into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame because Debbie Harry was going to perform with the iteration of Blondie that she's performing with. Right. And that's not the version of Blondie that got inducted to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Yeah. It also caused a lot of angst between other bands who've had lineup changes or breakups that come yeah. back and then it's like they don't, they're not going to play together and F you, you know? And yeah. The less famous members of the band are like, but we were going to get paid if we played. <laughs> the more famous <laughs> members are like, yeah, tough luck. Enjoy your free risotto because then you're out of here, buddy. You're paying right. admission like everybody else. Like, you know, whenever Kiss went into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, it was the four original members. 
And right. what I thought was awesome was they were all up there, not in their makeup, but they were up there and they, all of them wore sunglasses. Right. So kind of kept that anonymity, but not really. Yeah. You know, I think it's just because they're all old and they can't see and they're not going to wear like, you know, readers. <laughs> they're the, 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 the lenses that turn dark in the highlights of the stage, right? Like- yeah. Or those big like wraparound grandpa glasses right. that you see yeah. the old men with in the supermarkets yeah. and stuff. Yeah. yeah, you can you can also wear them when you run a, a CNC lathe with no like shield. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, those things. So yeah, everybody hates it. Yet everybody wants to be in it. I think they should make like one hit wonders work the door. Like, are you Aldo Nova? I used I, to be. You know, aren't you the guy from Flock of Seagulls? <laughs> oh, we have a special in our cafe today. If you buy a membership here, you get 10% <laughs> off. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks a lot. Okay. Guy from Spandau Ballet, get out of my way. <laughs> hey, hey, Tommy Two-Tone, can you validate my parking, please? <laughs> All right, so June the 8th, 1983, arguably Dan Aykroyd's best movie, arguably Eddie Murphy's best movie, and probably... Jamie Lee Curtis's best comedy uh, hmm. movie, a movie called Trading Places. I remember seeing Trading Places. I saw it in the cinema. This was one that oh, my, my dad took us to, yeah. And he cackled at it because he liked Dan Aykroyd, and he thought it yeah. was the funniest movie. And I remember sitting there like, I don't understand pork bellies? What's the pork belly? <laughs> um, like I, The whole like Wall Street thing was completely lost on me until I was much older. Yeah, but they did it in such a way that it kind of made sense. They did dumb it down like enough to make me not think enough. that I understand Wall Street, which I still <laughs> no. don't fully understand. They didn't. They didn't dumb it down enough for me. It took until I was oh. about twenty before I was like, "Oh, I see. Like, there's conditions that affect the crop of oranges, and they're betting against that or, or, or something." Okay, I guess I understand. I worked briefly Fidelity Investments, and my boss at the time was her answer to everything was, "It's like in Trading Places. Like, is this huh? a training movie?" Like, is that the training movie that you use here? Like, Trading Places, everything is related to Trading Places. Like, don't you remember at the end, like, the guys lose all their money? <laughs> Stalin and <laughs> Waldorf, whatever their names are, right? They use that as a training video? That's really funny. Yeah, they used to bring it up. She used to bring it up every day. What a fan it's, like, tra- it's like in Trading Places. Like, what What part of Trading Places is it like? Oddly enough, that movie stars a soon-to-be and now former U.S. Senator, because Al Franken's in that movie, remember? Yeah, he's one, yeah. He's one of the janitors at the end. Yes, I barely remember him yep. being in it, but I remember. It was a fun film. It was really well put together, and it definitely showcased Eddie Murphy's stronger comic talents. He also right. got to, to do what would become his like thing when he wasn't in an action movie, which is playing different characters. So he's it's the same, the same character, but he's in costume as different people throughout the film in different parts, and he ends up yes. doing that in a bunch of his other movies. He also did what became a Eddie Murphy trademark, which was Break the Fourth Wall. Right. Where he looks right into the camera. Mm-hmm. Uh, it gives the camera like a look as if to say, are you are you believing this? <laughs> <laughs> also, um, going back to the Al Franken scene with the janitors, that gorilla that's in yeah. that scene. We brought this up before, but the guy that made that gorilla suit is the same guy that made the Bigfoot suit for the Giblin, Giblin film. The Patterson Giblin film? Was that Bob Hieronymus? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. Just saying, he made the gorilla suit for Trading Places. Nice. And last but not least, information about Trading Places. It was directed by one of my favorite directors from the 80s, John Landis, who did American Werewolf in London, The Blues Brothers, 
uh, Michael Jackson's Thriller, Twilight Zone the movie, yes, Spies Like Us. He did a, a bunch of stuff, and his trademark is the phrase, see you next Wednesday, which appears yes. in all of his movies. All of his movies. Yep. That's right. All right, let's go on to June the 9th. June the 9th, 1967. Filling the void that is left in pop music by the Beatles stopping their live performances because they can't be heard over the screaming girls that are there. The Monkees appear at the Hollywood Bowl and play an indeterminate amount of time and a set of songs. And whenever they actually play their instruments in 67, it sounds terrible. But nobody can hear it anyway because all the girls are screaming like they would be if the Beatles were playing. Yeah, I remember watching the documentary or like the biopic about the monkeys. Mm-hmm. Two of the monkeys, Michael Nesmith and Peter Tork, as we've discussed right. many times on the show because we love the monkeys. But those two were like legit musicians. Mickey Dolenz was learning to play the drums, but you watch those episodes of the monkeys, you're like, that guy doesn't know what he's doing. Not he's even a, a little bit. Yeah, yep. And Davy Jones, I mean, he could shake the maracas and he could hold kind the of. bass. Yeah. But the guy was like five foot two, and a bass guitar is genuinely a pretty, you know, it's larger than a, 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 a guitar guitar, a six string. So yes. it just like dwarfs him. It just like envelops him. And I don't know if you've ever heard audio from that show, it's, but good thing those girls were screaming like they were because the monkeys sounded like an open faced asshole sandwich. They sounded <laughs> terrible. And some of it is, you know, the quality of the recording gear and how the sound was set up. But a lot of it, the vast majority of it, was that they were not a very good live band, even though they were playing big shows. I don't remember if in 67, if that was when Jimi Hendrix was touring with them, which he only played one or two dates, and he's like, I'm out of here, man. Yeah, he was the opening act, and then the monkeys would come on stage and just stink up the joint. (laughs) Bring the opener back out. No less love for me for the monkeys, because I love them. But, uh... In the desperate attempt to make yourself legitimate, sometimes you have to come out and stink up the Hollywood Bowl. Yep. So it was only a few years later where they said, you know, we could get real musicians as a backing band. And that's how they did the majority. Well, actually, the monkeys dissolved, you know, only a few years later. Right. You know, after they, they started kind of coming to terms with the fact that they weren't a real band. Right. But whenever they got back together 20 years later in the 80s, you know, they started touring with a legit backup band. Right. You know, Peter Tork would play his guitar and sometimes Mickey Dolenz would get behind the drums, but they had a good support system behind them. To right. be an actual four-piece band to go out there and play, the Monkees were not. Sorry sorry to no, report. That's true. And it's not like you're going to get all the studio guys from the Wrecking Crew to come out and play for you. It just doesn't work that way. Yeah, no, they they don't leave the building. They just stay <laughs> in not, there, and you, they're not allowed out. Yeah, you, f- you feed them like a tray under the door. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so moving on, June the tenth, nineteen o three, Biddy and Smith Company, uh, they begin developing a product line of wax crayons, and the product you may have heard of is known as Crayola. Still the best crayons in the business. Yeah, I was about to say I don't think that they invented the wax crayon. They just made the best ones. The best ones, and they made them the least expensive and the most available. So they were a staple uh, for me growing up. And no matter where I got crayons, you could get Prang crayons, you could get other brands of crayons, but they were all lesser, fewer colors, lesser names than the Binney and Smith 
Crayola product. They were a feature of my childhood and my kids' childhoods and my eventually the five world. grandchildren's their childhood, too. My God, like, as an artistic little lowercase 1L, man, you couldn't have made me any happier than getting me, like, oh, that 64-pack with the little sharpener built in on the back. Yeah. <laughs> Best and, birthday gift ever, yeah. Yeah, and I remember my brother had this, like, crayon set, Crayola crayon set that was, like, exclusive to my grandmother's house. Like, it stayed mm-hmm. there. Yep. And not only did it have a plethora of colors to choose from, but it also had, like, eight fluorescent colors. That was, like, oh, nice. groundbreaking shit right there, yeah. And I remember my brother had this, oh, my God. I would... If I would kill to get this back in my life, we had this, like, to us, I mean, we were little kids. It was this huge piece of, like, plywood or yes. uh, particle board or whatever it was. And my brother drew this, like, mural with the crayons of mm-hmm. all the superheroes and all the supervillains and stuff like that. This, like, huge mural. And I would, like, try to help or whatever. And it wasn't great. But in our minds, it was awesome, you know? Right. Yep. And that was just the best way to spend a day was with the, the Crayola crayons. It's so easy to lose a whole day with those, especially if you're a little kid who likes comic books and superheroes and and yep. drawing. You know, they're a staple. Good number two pencils and a good eraser were a staple. A, a ream of, well, at the time, it was typewriter paper. Mm-hmm. Like, you couldn't live without that. I, I spent thousands upon thousands of hours of my childhood drawing stuff. When I went to, like, middle school art classes, I was presented mm-hmm. with... I'm saying this with air quotes, grown-up crayons, crepas, which were the lamest of all art products in the history of art. Uh, wax pastels. Boo. Oh, the, yeah. My father used to draw with those sometimes, yeah. They're crayons. They're very expensive crayons, but yeah. they are crayons. Yeah, yeah, high-end crayons. My chapped balls. Uh, you know what I do sometimes? If I go out to eat, I will ask a waitress for crayons. While I'm waiting for my food, I will ask the way if you know if it's one of those kind of places that have them, like a a friendlies or you know some, if it's a family restaurant, I will ask the waitress for crayons and paper, and I will draw on the back of the uh, the placemat with the crayons while I'm waiting for my food. I have a photo in my collection that Meg drew of something Meg drew when we were at Legal Seafoods in Boston. We had gone to the New England Aquarium, yep, for the day and met my mom, and then we went for lunch afterwards and. After waiting a half an hour for like a table, we sat down and they gave us crayons and some some stuff for the kids. And she wrote out in phonetics the lyrics to Fear of the Dark by Iron Maiden on the back of her <laughs> napkin in blue. And she wrote it and she just left it there. And I was like, we're leaving that, you know. And I took I have pictures of it. I'll show them to you next time you're around. Uh, it was super, super funny. funny. She was only seven. So like phobia spelled wrong and some other stuff. It was wicked funny. Like the R is a backwards and stuff oh, like yeah. that. Like, it was like great. Obvious, like, little kid writing, but it's the lyrics to Fear of the Dark by Iron Maiden. Fear Made of the Dark, it. yeah, awesome. That is so funny. All right, let's wrap up the week. June 11th, 1966. The Rolling Stones' second best song peaks at number one in the United States. Do you know what song that is, Bill? Their second best song. Their second best song. No, I know what their first best song is. So what's what's the second best song? Their second best song is Paint It Black. You son of a bitch, that's their best song. <laughs> that is not their best song. Their best song is Gimme Shelter. Far oh, and away the best song I, they've ever recorded. 
I disrespectfully disagree, my friend. <laughs> well, you can disagree all you want, but that doesn't make you less wrong. Well, I would agree with you, but then we would both be wrong. <laughs> Painted Black is, is, is the first song of the Rolling Stones that I remember really seeking out because it was so different. It had a because video. Because it's their that best they, song. <laughs> maybe they they there was a period in MTV where they where record companies shot a bunch of like film videos yes film videos videos shot on 35 millimeter film and converted to video right. to put on MTV for older bands and there was Jimi Hendrix had one there was some repurposed like old um like TV show videos that were converted to the format that could be used on MTV but the Rolling Stones got painted black made with a big fat guy on a roller coaster Right, I was about to say, I remember them being on a roller coaster, right? And it was so different than the Rolling Stones that I was used to seeing because that video hit MTV after the videos for Tattoo You. And I was like, this is so amazing. What is this? How is this not, like, what is, the, how is this so much better than it, than the Rolling Stones that I see, like, with these, like, at the time in the 1980s, like, these old guys? And it's because the song was 20 years younger. Oh, my God, dude. How old were you? When you found out, because I'm looking this up on, because I wanted to see what album it's on. It's on the album Aftermath. It's yeah. actually the first song on Aftermath. And how old were you when you found out that the name of the song is Paint It Black? It's got a comma. There is a comma between Paint It and Black. I'm today years old. <laughs> yeah, I was as old as you. Yeah. Yeah, it's Paint It Black. I'm, I'm, I'm an idiot. Oh, my God. The next song on the album is Stupid Girl. It should be called Stupid Bill because I didn't know that they had a comma between painted and black until today. Well, did you know that there's a semicolon between Gimme and Shelter? And Gimme no, Shelter? there isn't. There is not. <laughs> there's an M dash between like Waiting that. On and A Friend. Did you know that there's an umwa above the U on Under My Thumb? <laughs> did you know that there's two rock dots above the O in Rolling Stones? <laughs> Did you know that there's an ellipsis after Flight 505? <laughs> All right. Um, All right. I uh, I have a cover song of the band Wasp doing Paint It Black. And, Ooh. man, you got to be something else to take a song that, that's that good and make it that bad. Right. Well, all right. Moving on to the celebrity birthdays. June the 5th, 1971. Probably best known for his role in Saw's, I think, five. I think he's in part five. Is he in Wahlberg. two and three? I thought he was in two no. and three. No, he's not. Oh, yeah, he's in two. He's in two. And he has a brief part in three, right? When he's dancing around right, with Right, yeah, and then foot. they bring him back. And they bring him back in five. Five or six. Five. Yeah, the one with the ice block. Yeah. All the movie, all those movies run together into one big like just it's jigsaw big, speech. It's it's a big mush. Yeah. <laughs> it's but a anyway, big mush. Anyway, yeah. Mark Wahlberg, younger brother of Donnie Wahlberg from the New Kids of the Block. Right. Uh I I remember whenever Mark started out, he started out as a rapper with Marky Mark and the Funky Bunch. Yeah. Good record, and good single. Before that even like dropped, as I still I'm still not used to saying that word. But before that album even was released, you and I are both from uh, a town called New Bedford in southeastern Massachusetts. Yes, indeed. And we are a large city geographically. Anyway, uh, we're about the same size as Manhattan, maybe a little bit less square footage wise. Okay. Population yes. wise, we are way smaller. We have about a hundred thousand. We would love it no more. 
if New Bedford could be a big city and get big city stuff, but we never do and we never will. We just don't have right. the budget for it. So I remember back in like, I don't know, I, I think it was like 1987 at the Whaling City Festival, the, the local radio station was big advertising saying that one of the new kids on the block's younger brother was going to be there performing. <laughs> and I was like, who be freaking do, really? But yeah, that was Mark Wahlberg, who went on to be Marky Mark and the Funky Bunch, who had his own video game on the Sega CD, I'll thank you to know. Oh, wow. I had yeah. no idea. Yeah, make my video. It's about oh, as popular that's right. as I think. Yep. And it's, I remember that. You're just, you're just putting like clips in order, right? Yeah. In a different order. Yeah, okay. The other day, one of my friends posted a picture of them with Mark Wahlberg on Facebook and told the story that they ran up to him yelling, Matt Damon, and Mark Wahlberg didn't even correct him and took the picture with him. It's <laughs> <laughs> pretty funny. Um, it is really still, funny because they're both from Boston and they all right. they do look alike. Matt Damon they, and Mark Wahlberg they, do look they, a lot alike. They do have some Boston, they do have yeah. some similarities, yes. That's but it's so funny, funny they didn't even correct them. Like, no. <laughs> All right, let's go oh, on funny. to the 6th. June 6, 1939. MTV video high-playing superstar. Everybody's going to know this guy, Bill. You mm. are going to immediately start to sing along as soon as I say half of his name, and you're going to yell out the other half of his name and start to sing his most famous, probably one of dozens upon dozens of super famous tracks, but it's Gary. Ready? U.S. Yep. Uh-huh. Bonds. Gary U.S. Right. Bonds, Bill. Do you remember him? So- Kind of? I know the name. I know Gary U.S. Bonds as a name, and I remember there being a video, but put a freaking gun up to my head right now. I can't... Who the hell is Gary U.S. Bonds? I feel like I should know him. Yeah. I got a a computer. I'm going to look stuff up. He had enough years of being in pop music that we should have known him, because he's been making music since, like, the early, early 1960s. All right, hold on. Before I hit the enter button on my keyboard over here. Yes. Oh my God, he looks like a, he looks like Billy Joel, but yeah, not really. Sounds like, right, he sounds like Billy Joel, who would put out a couple of like very Gary U.S. Bond sounding records about two years after he stopped being on MTV. His, oh my his God. song that was that was really popular was "This Little Girl," and and I have a funny story about that, right? Because now that we're talking, I can remember my brother was talking about a song. And he was like, what's that song? The The opening line is, here she comes walking down the street. And I'm like, that's... Do I Diddy. I go, that, yeah, that's Do I Diddy. He goes, no, it's Gary U.S. Bonds. And I'm like, it's not Gary U.S. Bonds. That's Manfred Mann. That's, here she was, just walking. He goes, no, not that song. I'm like, wait, there's another song? He goes, yeah, it's Gary U.S. Bonds. And... What song did you just say? <laughs> this little girl. That's Gary U.S. Bonds? I feel like we should insert a clip here of the beginning yeah, of this song. Yeah, I know this song. Oh my god, that's Gary U.S. Bonds. Yes. That's hilarious. That's the one. It starts off. There she comes walking down the street. Not and singing, 
Dude, did he did he dumb did he do singing something completely different? For me, just just throwing this on in the background, yeah. I would have argued that this was on the Billy Joel record where he did all like the <laughs> nineteen eighty four like right after the Uptown Girl period. Yep, it sounds like the stuff he was doing. Like a oh lot like the stuff he was doing. Lots. Oh my god, dude. So. There is a picture of Gary US Bonds, uh like an old, old, old picture of him on the Spotify like wallpaper. Yeah. And he's got almost like Jerry Only from the Misfits here. <laughs> All right. Let's go on to the seventh. Ooh, ooh, All ooh, right. ooh, ooh, ooh. Personal hero, personal close personal friend of mine. Uh June the seventh, nineteen sixty five, Mrs. Foley's baby little boy. Uh, professional wrestler, hardcore hero, and published author, uh, Mick Foley. Yeah. I remember watching him, being introduced to him as his character, Mankind, when I was yep. watching wrestling back in the middle 1990s. And he right. was super dynamic, even for that period of wrestling, which was like super dynamic across the board. Prior to him coming up to WWE as Mankind, he wrestled under the name Cactus Jack. Right. And he was, you know, very well known uh, in the southern regions and over in uh, Japan for just horrifically brutal matches. Right. Famously, he got tied up in the ropes. I think he was wrestling Vader in Japan. He got tied up in the ropes and it ripped his ear off. So oh. dudes, only, yeah, dudes only go, and he finished the match. Dudes only go one ear. He got his ear oh. ripped off uh, in a wrestling match. Yeah, and I will never forget this moment as long as I live. And anybody that was a wrestling fan in the '90s certainly remembers it. But it was a little bit more special to me because of the time frame. I had just moved into my first apartment. I had zero furniture. My bed was a futon. My computer desk was like a bureau. And my living room, I had a television set that was up on some boxes. I was sitting on a milk crate, and my friend Frank was sitting on, you know, some chair that came with the apartment. Right, right. And we were watching a pay-per-view, a wrestling pay-per-view. It was hot as balls. Didn't even have an air conditioning yet. And we're watching a wrestling pay-per-view, and it's a steel cage match. And it's The Undertaker versus Mankind. And anybody Mm -hmm. who knows their wrestling history knows what's coming up. Right. And, you know, we're sitting there and it's wrestling. So you're kind of half watching. You're kind of having this like conversation back and forth. And then all of a sudden, we both stood up simultaneously and said, holy shit, because they were standing on top of the steel cage and the Undertaker just tossed mankind off of the top of the cage into the table below. (laughs) <laughs> and nothing like that had ever been seen before, especially right. not in like the WWE. And the announcer, I don't know if he was ready for it. Like it might have surprised JR because the way he was, he was like, he just killed him. Yeah, we had <laughs> never seen that before. I've had the opportunity to meet Mick Foley a few times. He's actually a big fan of haunted mm-hmm. houses and he's done appearances with us. Uh, mm-hmm. In the past. Really, really, really cool guy. I used to love when he would bring out Mr. Sacco and <laughs> grab people by the blower jaw. That used to make me laugh to the point where, like, I couldn't even see straight anymore. I always thought that was a <laughs> hilarious gimmick. All right, let's go on to the 8th. June 8th, 1910, American science fiction writer and editor, a guy named John W. Campbell, 
you're a science fiction fan, he's probably best known for authoring the short novel Who Goes There, which was made into three films that are relatively well-known. The Thing from Another World with James Arness as yeah. The Thing. The Thing, directed by John Carpenter, with all kinds of blobby blob monsters as The Thing. Mm-hmm. And then it was remade more recently or, or expanded upon by a more recent film like 2004 or 2008, uh-huh. uh, also called The Thing. And it's one of those foundational pieces of science fiction that explores the idea of the creeping unknown and the unknowable and paranoia of isolation. It's a really good story uh, to read. Of the film versions, the one that is closest to what he wrote is John Carpenter's film version of the novel. Uh, now, his story, now you said it's a novel or is it yeah. a short story? It's a, it's a short novel, so it's a novella. It's between. It's in between. Okay. So, uh, 100 or so pages? Yeah. Absolutely, okay. yes. And and well worth going to dig out if you can find huh. it. Okay. Hey, three published authors in a row. Well, maybe four. I don't know if Gary U.S. Bonds ever wrote a book. <laughs> <laughs> June the 9th, 1961, Michael J. Fox. Probably yeah. best known for a Disney movie called Midnight Madness. <laughs> I remember him from the film Light of Day. That's what I remember him best for. I remember him from a movie called Bright Lights, Big City. <laughs> and, 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 and the secret of my success, Jeff. I, I was I was going to jump that one, but yes, the secret of my success, where he he does mountains of cocaine. It's like the uh, non serial killer version of American Psycho. Um, <laughs> so yeah, Michael J. Fox. Uh, is going to be best known for his role as Marty McFly in the Back to the Future series. Yes. Famously, our friend Michael J. Fox has Parkinson's disease, but he has brought a lot of awareness to his affliction and has raised a lot of money. We actually, in the cosplay group that I belonged uh, to at one time, we worked for one of his fundraisers, and there was like a slight chance that he was going to show up, but he did not. Oh, that's too bad. Yeah. Here's some fun. What does the J in Michael J. Fox stand for? Uh, you should save this as a trivia question, you know. I should have, but I'm not going to. Uh, it stands for J. Jonah Jameson. It does not stand for anything. Because oh. Michael J. Fox's middle name is Andrew. Oh. Yeah. Part of the Screen Actors Guild's rules and regulations is you cannot have the same name as anybody else in the Screen Actors Guild. And okay. there was already a Michael Fox. Michael Fox. And, yep. So he just picked the name Michael J. Fox, even oh, though well. his middle name is Andrew. Yep. Well, that makes sense, I guess. It's it's probably a stronger letter saying that as a person whose name begins with the letter J than, right. than someone whose name begins with the letter A. Well, that's cool. I didn't know that. Yep. All right. And let's go on to the 10th. June 10th, 1954. Richard or Rich Hall is a comedian. I know him most for being on the, the Canadian TV show, not necessarily the news that was broadcast on HBO, but he's also been in a ton of movies. He was on Saturday Night Live for a while, and he does stand up and some other stuff now still, as uh-huh. I understand it. But his like shtick on not necessarily the news was introducing the concept of sniglets, which are Ooh. words that sh- that don't exist but should. Right. Uh, so, yeah, he had a section on the show called Sniglets, which, as like you just said, words that belong in the English language uh, but but aren't there or 
little things that we have that we just don't have names for. Right. Like, I can't remember what the sniglet was, but there was a word for the seatbelt when it hangs out the door. Right. Like when you close the door and the seatbelt is hanging out, there was a yes. word for that. One of my absolute favorites was the Malaboogaloo. Which Mal- is the dance the, the dance that you do at the beach when you're going from the hot uh, from the ocean to your towel and the hot sand is burning your feet so you're jumping around that's the Malaboogaloo. yeah my favorite is the person who cuts around the red light by going through a gas station he's an so asso so is a Canadian gas station so asso and the one uh, that the- I still use with my kids is with a ketchup dryer on the top of the bottle is Flynn Flynn. <laughs> Uh, the one that I used to like was Dasho, mm-hmm. which was the area in between the dashboard and the windshield where pencils go and can never be retrieved. <laughs> uh, uh. Ah, Rich Hall. He was a funny cat. Funny cat, yep. that guy. Yeah, I'm, I'm actually really surprised that he's not more well-known. But I think people for Generation X that grew up with uh, early HBO will remember not necessarily news. And definitely, you know, anybody from Gen X, if you say Sniglets to, they're going to know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. All right. And then wrapping up the birthdays, June the 11th, 1959, British comedian Hugh Laurie, probably best known for playing Lord Monty from Footlights College in the episode <laughs> Bambi from The Young Ones. <laughs> yes. Where... Uh... Uh, he faced off against Scumbag College, where all of our cast from The Young Ones were. Yeah. Hugh Laurie, everybody in America, anyway, is going to know him best as playing House in the television yeah. show House. Yeah, Dr. House. Uh, uh, but he had a long, long career in British television and British mm-hmm. comedy with Stephen Fry, who yes. people will know best in America from probably V from Vendetta, is where he's best known Vendetta. in America. He was also on Bones. He was on that show quite a lot. So yep. if you watch Bones, he was on that a lot. Got back right. to Hugh Laurie, what's interesting about him is, you know, he's British and House was not a British character. So he, right. he pulled off an American accent very, very well. Yes. And American audiences, that was, for the most part, their first introduction to him. So it was interesting that, you know, House is more like a, a medical drama. It was kind of like based on Sherlock Holmes as a character. Yes. People would be very surprised to see like what a comedic actor he was. Yeah. He his his British work was on a sketch comedy show called A Bit of Fry and Laurie with him and uh and Stephen Fry. He played mm-hmm. George, the idiot George on three seasons of Black Adder, Black Adder two, three, and four. Right, he, I was uh, gonna mention Black Adder, sure. He he also was the the by far I don't know if he was the only, but he was by far the best version of Bertie Wooster the character from the Jeeves and Wooster novels by P.G. Woodhouse, which were really funny. It was a really funny TV show based on some really funny short stories. And Stephen Fry was in that, too. Stephen Fry played Jeeves, Jeeves the butler, who got Birdie out of trouble. Yeah, and Rick Mayle from The Young Ones, he was also in Blackadder. He was, Lord Flashheart. Yep, yep. Flash by name, Flash, Flash, by, Flash nature. by nature. Yep, Jeff, we've brought up, we brought up cocaine quite a bit on this show. <laughs> And it's not going to get any less because... (laughs) The worst song ever. Oh, Jeff, this song... We're talking about a charity single that came out right around the same time as all those other charity singles in uh, in the 80s. You know, first we started off with 
Um, do they know it's Christmas? Mm-hmm. Moving on to We Are the World. We had touched upon, I think we we did We Are the World as the worst song ever before, and I know we did Hands Across America as the worst song ever, too. Right. Now we're moving on to the often forgot about heavy metal version of like We Are the World right. called We're Stars <laughs> by Hearing Aid. songs that like will come up as like almost like bar trivia like hey do you remember hearing aid they had like the heavy metal cherry single and everybody's like no because i don't know if this actually raised any money right i vaguely remember this video being occasionally on mtv when it was brand new and then disappearing disappearing faster than uh, sheena easton like it was just (laughs) in and out and just disappeared right it, it just dawned on me, like, as I'm reading the description of this, because I, I remember this, the song after I listened to it. I was like, oh, I'm, you know, I remember seeing the video and stuff. Is that all of this stuff is to raise money for famine relief in Africa. Right. And, and USA for Africa was to raise money for famine relief in Africa. Do they yep. know it's Christmas was to raise money for famine relief in Africa. And Africa is a f-ing continent, Bill. Yes. The whole continent was not in, d- d- beset by drought. It dawns on me that this would be like raising money USA for Europe. And there's a surprisingly large amount of countries in Europe, the same as there are in Africa. And not right. all of them were in a... It's Lumping them all together into one sort of amorphous mass is really, like, disrespectful. Yeah, and Africa's not only a continent, it's a rather effing large continent. Right. I, you know, I... It's the second largest one, right? It's just second to Asia, right? I think so, yeah. And I think it's pretty close, too. I think they're pretty close to land now. So, yeah, there's that one strip of uh, Africa in you know in the equator where they were having a bad time with the drought and stuff like that at the time. So it became very hip and trendy to record charity singles. It was, like, a, not just those four. There was, a, you know, there was more of them. Yeah, I know. Um, I remember. So... I'm looking at the band list over here, uh, and it is a a who's who of who was and who <laughs> never was over here. This song is a Dio song. Yeah. And it opens up with Dio saying, Who will care for the children? Well, he pretty much uh, alternates, right, with every other singer. He, like, picks up a half a verse and he sings tell? on the bridge. You can, you well, if you watch the video, he's literally, they keep cutting yes. around to him. He's always on the other microphone. You need to watch the video because at the time, I'm not, I'm not saying anything bad, but at the time, when you have Dio, Dave Medichetti from Y&T, who you're saying, <laughs> who? Exactly. <laughs> Rob Halford from Judas Priest, Kevin right. DeBro from Quiet Riot, Right. Eric Bloom from Blue Oyster Cult. Paul Shatierno from Rough Cut. I don't even know who Rough Cut is. Yeah, he probably hangs around with Dave Medichetti, I'm going to guess. <laughs> Jeff Tate from Queensryche. Right. And then Don Dawkins. All of these guys sing exactly the same. If you're not 
well-versed in 1980s heavy metal and not watching the video, you cannot tell when the vo- the singing changes hands. Right. You can't. You can't tell when it goes through one of its 16 or so guitar solos because everybody from Adrian Smith to Yngwie Malmsteen to uh, Carlos Cavazzo are all involved in this thing. There's enough guitar solos to sink a small ship. Noted heavy metal guitar player Neil Sean from Journey... <laughs> and also known shredder Brad Gillis from Night Ranger also in there. And Craig Golgi Goldie? Craig Goldie from Jafria. Right. Who the fuck is Jafria? <laughs> I don't know, man. I remember that name. Yeah, I remember the name. I could put a gun to my I head. Could, I couldn't you know, name like, a song by them. Play, play me a song by Jafria and then play me one by Gary U.S. Bonds, and I might be able to pick out which one's which. Right. Running down the list of other people that showed up to play on this, uh, to sing on this record. Tommy Aldridge from Ozzy Osbourne. Carmine, oh my God. So Carmine Apiece and Vinnie Apice, or maybe Carmine Apice and Vinnie Apice. I can't remember. They're <laughs> brothers, but they both pronounce their names their different. names differently, yeah. They're bastards like that, it's, yeah. It's the Michael, the uh, Michael J. Fox quotient of heavy metal rock and roll right there. Carmine was in Vanilla Fudge, and then he was in King Cobra. Right. Uh, but we also have members of Dio, Quiet Riot, Dawkin, more guys from Rough Cut, uh, a couple guys from Wasp, Ingvi Malmsteen was there, a couple guys from Motley Crue, and my favorite part, if you watch the documentary, Michael McKeon, <laughs> Michael McKeon and Christopher Guest from uh, Spinal Tap are both there. But they're in character. They're in the Spinal Tap characters. Yes. Super. That was the most enjoyable part about watching the documentary because they're so damn funny. Yes. Oh, and oh, I'm sorry. It's uh, it's Harry Shearer. It wasn't. Oh, uh, okay. It wasn't Christopher Guest that was there. No, it's no, it's Harry Shearer who we covered the other day on uh, Celebrity Birthdays. Mm-hmm. Um. So yeah, he's talking. He goes, yeah, they they wanted us to do the guitar solos, but like with such virtuosos that. Like, nobody else would want to do a guitar solo after us because we would just, like, blow everybody away. (laughs) (laughs) And then later on, they were talking about how Ingve Malmsteen just made him want to quit playing guitar. And he brought up a really good point that uh, Ingve Malmsteen on his albums referred to himself as Ingve J. Malmsteen. So as not to be confused with all the other Ingve Malm scenes out there, I guess. Well, well, maybe there was a rule in the Rock and Roll uh, Actors Guild or something, you know. It'd be so awesome if Ingve Malmsteen's middle name was Andrew. <laughs> it would be. <laughs> or if Ingve Malmsteen was really Michael J. Fox. Hmm? <laughs> the song didn't really chart so much. Um, I have it down here as going to, like, number 76 in Australia. You know, <laughs> and I'm sure the re- the reviews of it were something along the lines of, "Crikey, this is terrible." Yeah, in the middle of the song is the guitar solo because it was the 1980s, and that's what you did. Right. And what's really funny about it is to listen to it because normally when you follow the structure of a song, you got verse, bri- you know, verse, chorus, verse, chorus, verse, bridge, chorus, right. and then whenever there's a guitar solo, it usually does two stanzas of the verse two stands of the chorus and then back into the chorus. Well, right. this is just like 12 or 15 stanzas of the verse and you're constantly <laughs> waiting for the guitar solo to like wrap up and go back into the chorus and you're like, nope, here's another freaking 
couple of minutes of guitar solo. It goes on and on and on. It is definitely a Dagwood sandwich of music. How's that for a reference, right? Yeah. It is a Dagwood sandwich of a heavy metal song. It's like all of Dio's career mashed into one 10-minute ham and cheese on rye. And you know what's another thing, too? I, when I, I remember this whenever the song was around, was Do They Know It's Christmas was all about, you know, lyrically all about the, you know, the famine in uh, Ethiopia and whatnot. Right. We are the world. They, you know, straight up, it's called USA for Africa, and they're, you know, talking about raising the money and all that. And hands across America, you know, they wanted to make a human chain of hands across America. There is nothing that I can pick up in the lyrics of this song that has anything to do with raising money for a famine in Africa. But it's for it's the like, children, Bill. Think of the children. Who's going to cry for the children? Who's going to cry for the children, Bill? That could be anything. That could be, he he could be lamenting about Mighty Mouse snorting you know flower petals at this point. Right. Won't somebody think of the children. One of the funniest things before we wrap up this segment in the comment section of YouTube, I will always give credit to her for this joke. Uh, former Twibley uh, co-host uh, Jezebel Grace referred to the comment section of YouTube as the Moss Eisley spaceport of the internet, but. <laughs> There was a great comment that someone said about this uh, the documentary that I watched. They said all they would have had to do was submit their Coke money for the week. <laughs> <laughs> and they would have raised more money than this single ever did. Right. I think it only raised like about a million bucks altogether, which is probably less than it took to get everybody there to put it together. Yeah, I couldn't find I couldn't find any they're probably too embarrassed. Um to say how much money it raised. I couldn't find any solid information to how much it raised, but safe to say this was a flop. And I think the only people who are going to say, no, man, that song was awesome, are just the true hardcore, you know, 80s metal fans. Yeah, maybe. Well, I mean, you know, they need something to hang their hat on to. Yep. I'm sure if there was like prog rock version, which would still be playing and being recorded as we, re- as we <laughs> record this episode. Wait, we need another keyboard solo in here. And a time change. Yep. Before we wrap up the show altogether, uh, I do have my very popular and always well-received trivia question. Hey, Jeff. Hey, Bill. I just stumbled across some tartaric acid, T-A-R-T-A-R-I-C, tartaric acid. Where can one find such acid? Where can you find this? One can find tartaric acid, I think, in a little jar of cream of tartar. That is a good guess, but... Wrong. Tartaric acid is found in unripe grapes, and it is the primary active ingredient that gives wine its distinct taste, which is also where I believe the word tart comes from, because wine is very tart. I'm, I'm doing a fast check here, because cream of tartar is tartaric acid. It's a byproduct of winemaking. So I am correct. Really? Yes. All right. Two in a row. But okay. Yes. It's, I'm uh, correct. So cream of tartar is basically yes. just white wine? No, it's a powder. It's potassium bitartrate. So it's it's used as a, it's a single stage baking powder. That's what oh, okay. it is. And it's, it's an acid that interacts with the basic components in flour or rye to make risen bread. Or cake. And that's that's what it is. All right. Well, 
I'm, I'm happy to be wrong, and I'm happy to have give you two in a row, young Jeff. <laughs> Thank you very much. It was a pleasure right. to get the second one right. So that's going to wrap up the show for this week. We'll see you back here in seven days. Say goodnight, Jeff. Good night, Jeff. Bye, Bye guys. everybody. A special shout-out to James Costa for our theme music. Thank you for listening to Twibbly, but this week was way better last year. You know, you can find us or message us over at Facebook or Instagram. Just look for Twibbly. That's T-W-W-W-B-L-Y. What's that, girl? You should subscribe to Twibbly and tell your friends. Oh, wait. Never mind. It's just that Timmy kid stuck in the old mineshaft again. Don't be like Timmy. Subscribe to Twibbly, and your dog can listen, too.